and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the historic vote today by the California Air Resources Board to approve new rules that would phase out gasoline cars, banning the sale of all of them by 2035, by which time there will be 100% of all electric cars on the road, along with allowing 20% of zero-emissions cars sold to be plug-in hybrids. Joining us to assess whether car manufacturers and clean electricity suppliers can meet the challenge is David Victor, a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Carbonization Initiative, which focuses on real-world strategies for bringing the world to nearly zero emissions of warming gases. He was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Global Warming Gridlock, Creating More Effective Strategies for Protecting the Planet, and his latest book just out is Fixing the Climate. Then, following yesterday's observance of Independence Day in Ukraine, which also marked the sixth month of Russia's war against that embattled country, we will speak with Taras Kuzio, a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev, and the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. We will also discuss dissent inside Russia from anti-fascist partisans and within the security services that may explain the recent assassination of the daughter of a nationalist leader. Then finally, we'll examine the likelihood that the revival of the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, is very near and that its renewal could prompt the pro-Trump Saudi leader Mohammed bin Salman to drive up the price of oil ahead of the November elections in retaliation to hurt Biden in spite of the recent fist bump the two leaders shared. Joining us is Dr. Trita Parsi, the Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a Professor of Political Science at Georgetown University, whose books include Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran and the Triumph of Diplomacy. We will discuss his article at MSNBC, China is not the winner of a U.S. military exit from the Middle East, America is. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, David Victor, a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Carbonization Initiative, which focuses on real-world strategies for bringing the world to nearly zero emissions of warming gases. 
He was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics, The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocol and the Struggle to Slow Global Warming, and Global Warming Gridlock, Creating More Effective Strategies for Protecting the Planet. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Victor. Ian, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And this, I think, is an important day, is it not, David, uh, with the state of California? They had a vote before the California Air Resources Board uh, meeting today, and they voted to approve uh, very tough rules that would ban the sale of new gasoline cars by 2035. So this is, I think, among, I mean, I know in China they've made some initiatives along those lines, but uh, this is pretty monumental given the, the clout that the state of California has over the auto industry in terms of being a big market. Yeah, Ian, it's it's definitely a big deal. So, and this also delivers on a series of promises that have been made over the last couple of years. There was an executive order from the governor back in 2020. Uh, there's the, This plan was released in draft and back in the spring, lots of complaints about it and so on. So it's, it's adopting formally that draft that's been out there since the spring. It's a really big deal for California because 41% of the emissions of greenhouse gases in the state come from transportation, a lot of it from cars, also from trucks and so on that are not covered with such aggressive measures. Uh, and it's also going to send a signal to the rest of the market. There are many other places in the country that more or less follow directly California rules. And there's a lot of places in the world that are watching what's going on in California, and they'll do something Something similar. So I, I think it's a it's a really big signal. There's obviously going to be all kinds of challenges and difficulties as we put this into practice because you know we're going into the unknown, but it's a big deal. And just to sketch it out a little here, starting with 2026 models, 35% of new cars, SUVs, and small pickups sold in California would be required to be zero emission vehicles. That quota would increase each year and is expected to reach 51% for all new car sales in 2028, 68% in 2030, and 100% in 2035. And it would also the quotas would also allow 20% of zero-emission cars sold to be plug-in hybrids. And the rules, of course, don't impact uh, used cars. So we'll continue to have gas guzzlers, but in a very reduced number, right? I mean, so let's talk about Detroit. The surprising little pushback from Detroit. They seem to have bought into electric cars. So do you think they can meet these uh, quotas? Well, I think I don't think anybody knows if we can meet these quotas. You know, 100%, that's a lot. That's everything. Um, the, right now, we're a little more than 12% of new vehicles are in California are electric vehicles, which is the dominant form of zero emission vehicle. This rule is written in a very clever way that it allows for other technologies to come into place. A lot of people are excited about hydrogen powered vehicles. That's not a big deal yet, but it could be in the future as hydrogen costs come down. And there's new incentives from the big climate bill uh, signed by President Biden a couple of weeks ago to produce hydrogen at lower costs. And so uh, it's a big shift. To me, what's interesting about Detroit is this is the same playbook that the California Air Resources Board followed when they did the most aggressive things to clean up the air in California, which is they set extremely ambitious goals, and then they watched to split the industry. They watched to watch parts of the industry come on board, other parts of the industry to be laggards. And we've just seen in the last few hours that Ford has more or less said they're going to be supportive of this. There's a big electric vehicle program at Ford, also one at General Motors. And so I expect that not all of Detroit will be on board straight away. Not all the global automakers will be on board straight away, but enough will that that'll give California confidence that even if they can't quite get 
get to 100%, they can make a pretty big effort at it and that they're in effect shaping the industry by doing this. And that's that's the strategy that California Air Resources Board has always followed and been a very effective strategy. But of course, during the Trump administration, the California Air Resources Board lost its ability to do exactly what it's done today. And Biden, of course, restored that ability with, through executive order. So there have been some setbacks by, certainly by Trump, who I don't know who, at whose behest he was operating, but uh, <laughs> go figure. <laughs> one never knows with Mr. Trump, but one, one sometimes knows, I guess. Um, yeah, and the California leadership said to the Trump administration, go pound sand. They just continued doing what they were doing. They were confident that they would get their authority back. And even if they didn't get their authority back, they were confident they were just going to keep doing what they're doing. So there will be some significant legal challenges here. Some of them will relate to the impact of all this on interstate commerce. Um, there'll also be some big technological challenges. You know, will we be able to shift to all electric or hydrogen powered vehicles? Um, what's going to be the impact of this on the demand for batteries? 90% of batteries in the world right now are made in China. And so there's a lot of concerns about you know, moving those supply chains away from an all Chinese supply chain. So there's all this kind of clutching and gearing that needs to happen. But there's it's something you can't figure out by just by working it out on a piece of paper. It's got to be run in practice. And there's a new book that Chuck Sable and I have out just in the last couple of weeks called Fixing the Climate. It's all about how societies solve these kinds of problems when there's a big push to do something and nobody really knows what to do. And this, what's happening in California right now with vehicles is a great example of that. And again, I'm speaking with David Victor, who's a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Carbonization Initiative, which focuses on real-world strategies for bringing the world to near-zero emissions of warming gases. And he was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Global Warming Gridlock, Creating More Effective Strategies for Protecting the Planet, and his latest book is Fixing the Climate. In terms though, of hydrogen cars, to get enough hydrogen fuel, you would have to have pretty big solar farms, would you not, for the hydrolysis process. In other words, you, a lot of hydrogen is created actually from uh, fossil fuels at the moment, which is obviously not, not helpful. How are we going to adapt to massive hydrogen production? Well, what's going on in hydrogen technologically and also in terms of the investments is just fascinating right now. So exactly as you say, Ian, essentially all the hydrogen today is made from fossil fuels. It's made in part by by um, changing the chemical composition of coal. Mainly in the West, it's, it's made by from natural gas. That causes emissions. What, but there are, there are a lot of different ways of making hydrogen. One way is to make hydrogen from natural gas and then capture the pollution before it goes up in the atmosphere. That turns out to be relatively easy to do. That's called blue hydrogen. Another way is to take solar power or wind power and run it through an electrolyzer and then break apart the water and the, uh, the, the oxygen and the hydrogen in water molecules and make hydrogen that way, also make valuable oxygen that way. Uh, and that's called green hydrogen. There are other flavors as well, other, other colors as well. It looks like right now, both green hydrogen and blue hydrogen, they're expensive, but the costs are coming down. And what's so interesting about the recent infrastructure uh, or the Inflation Reduction Act that was signed by President Biden a few weeks ago is that includes in it a tax credit of up to $3 a kilogram, which is a significant tax credit for hydrogen for producing these, these low carbon forms of hydrogen. So we could be surprised in the coming decade at how well hydrogen does as a rival to electricity um, for the vehicle fleet. And I guess in the earlier 
bipartisan infrastructure bill, there was some money for charging stations, wasn't there? So are we going to be up to speed on charging stations? Well, I don't think we know what up to speed means right now. It's exactly the right question. The the bipartisan infrastructure bill had money for charging stations. The new uh, Inflation Reduction Act has money for charging stations. California itself has its own very active charging station program. The bipartisan infrastructure bill also had $8 billion for hydrogen hubs, what are called hubs, so clusters of producers and users of hydrogen to kind of jumpstart the creation of that industry. So you've got these different infrastructures that are in the early stages of being rolled out. I think that for the electric vehicle charging network, uh, one of the really important sets of questions is about electric vehicle charging, uh, especially in lower income neighborhoods and in rural and remote areas, where it's, it's going to be harder to build that out. And frankly, we have to be very careful that we don't do things that pose lots of costs on families that are already seeing big increase in, for example, uh, uh, energy costs across the board. And those are the kinds of practical things that will need to be worked out. We're going to need to have other kinds of policies to help those communities out. But in terms of the grid itself, in other words, there's going to be more demand for electricity. And if you charge your electric car overnight, it's no problem because there's not much demand during the night and electricity has to be continually produced, uh, whether it's used or not. So what's the likelihood of, of being able to have more green electricity? Because there's no point in having fossil fuel electricity to charge clean vehicles. Yeah, so that's one of the great unknowns here. And it's a, it's a really a question of both the technology and human behavior. So right now, the pricing structure strongly encourages people in California to charge their electric vehicles at night. And that's what we see in their actual behavior. As the California grid moves to more renewable power, especially solar power, 90% of our renewables are probably going to be solar, then you really want to have charging in the middle of the day. And so the pricing regime is going to need to change. And probably we're going to need to be shifting to electric vehicle chargers that automatically figure out the best time of day to put juice into the car. And if that's done, then you could have a much larger grid, electrify more of the economy, but um, do it in a way that's very cost effective where we're using all that excess solar, a lot of that excess solar in the middle of the day to charge electric vehicles. But it's whether humans will align their behavior that way uh, remains to be seen. And one of the many challenges there is that that means that we're going to have to have chargers where people are in the middle of the day, which at least before the pandemic meant they were they were at work and uh, not at home. And, and that's that has a big implication for where you put the chargers and who pays for them. So just in closing, is there a cultural resistance here? I mean, in Texas, of course, you got all these big pickup trucks with Confederate flags and other kind of symbols of, I don't know what it is, symbols of freedom, I guess, is the canard that's used. I know Ford's come up with an electric version of its, of its popular pickup truck. Is there any indications that somehow there's an addiction to gasoline cars in this country or are people quite prepared? I mean, they have to look out their window and look at all of the the fires and the floods and the, and the climate catastrophes to recognize global warming as a clear and present danger. So just culturally, are we ready for this? I think mostly we're going to be ready for this, although it really depends on the segment of the population. For the segment of the population that's really worried about climate change is going to buy an electric vehicle because they're concerned about climate change, they're already convinced a lot of them where they can afford it are buying electric vehicles. The really big question is the mass public. And I think that's going to depend on cost 
and anxiety about the infrastructure, the, the charging, uh, the charging network, and so on. The Ford 150, the electric version of that, is really interesting uh, because that could create a kind of muscle truck. Uh, mentality around electric vehicles that could be a really big deal. I think you can have your flag in the back of, a, of an electric uh, F-150 just as you can in a gasoline-powered F-150. Rivian, which is a startup, is a, a competitor to that. Also a lot of really interesting um, uh, electric trucks. And then are all designed to look macho, if that's the right term, and to be uh, cars that appeal to what people want in cars, which is not just mobility. So I th I'm actually cautiously optimistic about that. I'm sure there are gonna be a lot of segments of the country that will be holdouts and will mock electric vehicles and so on, but the mockery in part is a sign that the new culture is winning. So just in closing, what about cost? Because at this point, Teslas and other electric cars are out of reach for most uh, households. Yeah, and those prices just went up. Um, we're seeing a lot of competition. A lot of this hinges on the cost of the battery and also, frankly, the efficiency of the vehicle. The electric vehicles have not actually gotten more efficient in terms of the kilowatt hours needed to move a mile down the road for a long, long time. And that's in part because they're very heavy. They have these huge battery packs and and, and the manufacturers are getting over the anxiety that people have about can they drive far enough in their car by putting in bigger and bigger batteries. So the cars are very, very heavy. Um, I'm I'm optimistic about that, but that is not a done deal. Some of it will depend on the improvement of battery technology and also the, the adequate supplies of lithium. A lot, lithium costs are way up, I think five times what they were five or six years ago, if I remember correctly. And, and that's all a big, big factor in the economic equation. Right now, I don't think electric vehicles are priced, even the lower end electric vehicles are priced for absolute complete mass market adoption. The costs are gonna have to come down more. Well, David, Victor, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, Ian, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David Victor, who is a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Carbonization Initiative, which focuses on real-world strategies for bringing the world to near-zero emissions of warming gases. He was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics, The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocols and the Struggle to Slow Global warming and global warming gridlock creating more effective strategies to protect the planet and his latest book is fixing the climate we're going to take a brief station break and back looking into yesterday's observance of independence day in ukraine which also marked the sixth month of russia's war against that embattled country Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Taras Cusio, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev, and he's the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism, and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russia-Ukraine War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Taras Cusio. So... Ukraine celebrated, if that's the right way to describe it, its Independence Day yesterday, and yesterday marked the six months of this war. 
And what the Russians did was uh, they fired a missile at a train station, killing a a lot of uh, civilians and civilian casualties so far, according to the United Nations, of Ukrainians killed in this war, this six-month-long war, is tops about 13,000. So how is, uh, from your connections in Ukraine, how is the country's morale under these conditions? Well, I think you'd be surprised to hear quite high, um, despite the fact that there's a lot of destruction going on. Russia has fired 3,000 missiles. Can you believe it? 3,000. And most of those have been fired against non-military targets. Um, Besides the sort of nearly 15,000 civilians that we know of that you've mentioned that have been killed, there was all, all... Also, a similar number were killed in the previous eight years prior to the invasion, because, of course, Russia first invaded Ukraine in 2014. Um, But opinion polls in the one just a few days ago show that, um, firstly, that we're talking about over 80 percent of Ukrainians believe that they will win the war. Um, They similar number believe that their country is heading in the direction in the right direction. So there's there's an overall optimism, which... um, in some ways I'm surprised about, but I guess it's a product of the fact that they feel that they're very angry, they're aggrieved, um, and they they don't want to accept uh, what Putin is doing. And Putin is basically demanding Ukraine surrender and capitulate. I mean, that's the reason for the terror against civilians. Um, but ever since, in particular, uh, the examples that have been found of um extra you know of murders of civilians of rapes of women and children and of mass looting and these were found sort of in march and april when russia withdrew from the kiev region um that very deep level of anger um i think is a, remains still a driving force and that's both with civilians and with the military we should remember that a huge number of uh, civilians are involved um, either as um, in, for example, providing medical care, um, volunteers helping with refugees and people um, who have been dislocated from their residences, and also from the 200,000 Ukrainians who have joined the Territorial Defense Force, a kind of of a National Guard or a Home Guard, as it were. So many civilians are are, are involved hands-on in, in, in the war. So I think the morale, from what we see, the morale remains very high. And that has grown in the last month or so because Ukraine now, with the help of Western weapons, in particular US weapons, is taking the fight to the enemy. I mean, Ukraine is now attacking military uh, military bases in the Crimea. I mean, this is a new new development. So if we could turn to the Russian side, as much as we know what's happening, uh, Putin's now tried to get more recruits into his military. He apparently is relying more and more on the mercenaries, the Wagner Group. But there's a report that an emissary, if you will, of the Kremlin, the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, he's announced that Putin is ready to negotiate what do you think of that? Is, it, is there any real possibility? Because uh, obviously the Ukrainians don't trust Putin, and understandably yes. so. Is there any possibility of a talk, talks coming up soon? I've not heard of any 
talks at all uh, being scheduled. And um, Volodymyr Zelensky, who's by no means an extremist, I mean, he's a, I would call him a, you know, in the US, he would be in the sort of Democratic Party, I would say. Um, and um, and he's Jewish of Russian-speaking origin from Eastern Ukraine. So he's no no radical nationalist. Um, he's he's ruled out any negotiations with Putin until Russia withdraws from its territories. Um, most Ukrainians, and, and I saw an opinion poll this week where something like 50% of Ukrainians understand victory in the war as Russia withdrawing from all of the territories it occupies, not just the one since it began its invasion six months ago. So I've not heard of any talks. I mean, you hear sometimes about, um, for example, Turkish President Erdogan attempting to broker some kind of talks. But, but I think the view of Ukrainians is similar to the view of Americans and, and I think people, governments in the West in general, that Putin will only negotiate seriously, if that's possible, um, when his back's against the wall, um, when he's on the verge of being defeated militarily. Um, he, Russia is now, um, as it were, on, the, on, on its back foot. Ukraine does have the wind between its tails, and Ukraine, the war seems to be going in Ukraine's favor, but I think we're still a few months from the end game, as it were. Russia's biggest problem is that, besides losing lots of equipment, it, it doesn't have the manpower. Um, Putin has not wanted to organize a full-scale mobilization of soldiers, of conscripts, because he thinks that that would be unpopular in Russia. So he doesn't have the manpower, and he's dragooning people, in, um, literally dragooning people to become cannon fodder. So I think that problem of lack of manpower and the impact of Western sanctions will come to hit Russia by the end of the year. But that's, so I think then, I think Russia, we can probably be a bit more seriously looking at uh, Russia if it talks about negotiations. But at the moment, I think uh, we still need to apply military pressure to get to that position. And again, I'm speaking with Taras Kuzia, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev, and he is the author or editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. So meanwhile, of course, the United States is, in fact, Biden yesterday announced another $3 billion in military aid to Ukraine, and since Biden came into office, the U.S. has committed more than $13.5 billion in security assistance to Ukraine. And since 2014, the United States has committed more than $15.5 billion in security assistance to Ukraine. But the Russians, of course, it looks as if they're going to uh, try and cut off the electricity supply from Zaporizhia, the big nuclear power plant, uh, which is a, supplies about 20% of Ukraine's electricity. They're going to try and divert that the grid to Crimea. And also Gazprom shut the, off the gas supply for, for three days of so-called maintenance. How are the Western Europeans holding up and the Ukrainians themselves in a, in a cold winter if the, Russia cuts off the supply of gas to both and electricity in Ukraine, but gas to uh, Germany and other European nations? The U.S. seems to be solidly in support, but could the cohesion of the NATO alliance 
weakened, do you think, over time, or particularly during a cold winter? Well, I think, I mean, there's always talk about so-called Western fatigue, but I don't see any examples of that yet. I mean, we we will always have had, I think, two groups of countries um, in the NATO alliance. You have the sort of the more um, hawkish, if you want to call it that, countries, which are countries in uh, Eastern Europe, particularly countries bordering Ukraine, um, former communist countries like Poland, like the Baltic states. Um, they're backed by uh, Britain, US, Canada, um, Scandinavia. I mean, those countries are going to stay the course. Um, it's always going to be when we're talking about potential fatigue, we're talking primarily about France and Germany, in particular Germany, because France is not really reliant on Russian energy. It has a large nuclear power base. So, um, I mean, on the one hand, you, you, we can smirk and, and say, well, it, we told you so to the Germans because um, everybody was telling the Germans you shouldn't be shouldn't allow yourselves to become so reliant on Russian energy supplies. This is a mistake. Um, but on the other hand, um, I think I don't see how there's any other way out except to have the initial pain of withdrawing from uh, importing Russian gas. Uh, EU members are supposed to end importing of oil by the end of this year, and then gas over a number of years. Um, and, and, and that's going to happen. What, I, what is more difficult to understand is Russia's objectives, because Russia seems to not realize that once Western Europe gets over this sort of initial pain of readjusting their economies to no longer import Russian or to no longer be reliant on Russian energy, then where's Russia going to take that energy? Um, Russia can export its oil in, um, in, in big ships um, and China's taking a lot of that, but you can't export gas um, except in pipelines. Russia never invested into LNG. Um, into converting this gas into liquid and natural gas. So the gas that Russia has been importing or exporting to Western Europe, um, it's going to go nowhere. Um, there aren't the pipelines built yet to China. And the pipelines for that export of Russian gas have, were built in the Soviet period, and they're all towards Europe. So in, in the end, it's going to be Russia that's going to lose, um, particularly because Russia is Nigeria with nuclear weapons. It doesn't export anything else except energy and military equipment. That's all it exports. It ha- there is no Russian Huawei or Samsung. Um, and nobody wants to buy now even Russian arms because they've done so badly in Ukraine. So if nobody's going to be importing the gas, where's Russia going to get money from for its budget? So you can look at this in two different ways. I, at the moment, don't see that the West, as it were, fatiguing. I think it is true to say that there are two viewpoints on on the outcome of the war. There isn't a united, a unified viewpoint. One of them would be I would say more in the hawkish camp, um, the British, the East Europeans, Scandinavians, um, would be that uh, we need to defeat Putin, we need to defeat Russia, and hopefully that will lead to regime change in Moscow. Uh, Putin, I don't see how Putin could survive defeat. And then the more moderate position would be we just need to um, weaken the Russian army uh, 
to a, to a great extent. So Putin then is forced to negotiate with good faith. So I think those are the two positions. And I'm not surprised there are two positions um, in that um, some people, of course, are afraid um, of what what would happen if Putin was defeated. I mean, would he resort to um, more radical steps like threatening nuclear war, for example? So I, I, I'm not that surprised that there are these differences of opinion, but at the moment, they don't look like to be major ruptures in the Western alliance. Well, just in the last few minutes, though, is there any possibility of ruptures within Russia itself? The assassination of Dugan's uh, daughter, who's actually a lot mm -hmm. more popular and well-known than he is, so she may, she may well have been a target, not an accident. There are indications that the Russian Republican uh, partisan movement which is anti-fascist, is behind it. Is there any indication of a split in the elite and the security services? Because the the bombing uh, of Dugan's daughter suggests that they had access to pretty sophisticated um, equipment, yeah. meaning, meaning it might have well it might be well a battle between the Siloviki, um, the more pragmatic ones, and the the radical nationalists. It's it's a very strange assassination, uh, very very strange. I mean, um, it would seem that the target was Alexander Dugin because he switched cars at the last minute, but we simply uh, don't know. Um, it's it's a bit odd that he was would have been targeted. Of course, straight away the blame is laid at the door of the Ukrainians, um, uh, and also Western countries like Estonia and Britain. Um, they're accusing the British intelligence services of being behind it. I think there's a lot of people who believe that um, this was a false flag operation. This was the Russian intelligence services doing it themselves to maybe have an excuse um, to go to have to adopt more destructive policies against Ukraine, potentially. I mean, that could be one one way of looking at it, that it, because I mean, Russia has a history of doing these false flag operations going back to 1999, when uh, the FSB, Russia's domestic security service, um, undertook four bombings of civilian apartments, killing 300 Russians, um, which allowed Putin to come to power on a wave of anti-Chechen Russian nationalism. So Russia has a tradition of these false flag operations. But on the other hand, you're right. It could be also an indication that there are divisions within Russia's elite, which I wouldn't be that surprised about, because after all, um, Russia has lost a lot of military equipment um, in Ukraine, and Russian military equipment is not up to scratch. It, it just can't compete with the stuff being sent by the West, in particular the new new equipment sent by the US, the HIMARS and the various types of drones that have been sent. Russia, ironically, never invested into a major drone um, drone um, drone industry. Um, it relied very traditionally on tanks. So um, I think there must be inevitably people in, in the Russian security elites who are wondering how long can we go on with, with this? Um, because the manpower is a problem issue. Um, you know, Putin can't withdraw because that would be seen as defeat and he would be kicked out probably. Um, and he can't do a full-scale military sort of development so that he could um, maybe raise, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of new conscripts. I mean, that's not likely as well, because Russians seem to be, um, on the one hand, 
saying that they support the war, but on the other hand, they're saying we don't want to go and fight. That's what the opinion polls are showing. Um, and the and the growing number of casualties in Ukraine, which uh, range from something like thirty to forty thousand dead and two to three times that more were wounded, will put off even more Russians from going to fight. So I think all of those factors are inevitably, I would think, uh, going to lead to questions being asked at the top: Is are we are we are we doing the right thing here? Because I mean, Russia can't have much left. For example, if there's a war tomorrow with NATO, what would Russia have left to fight against NATO? It's lost so much military equipment in Ukraine. It's also shown up, um, it's rather embarrassing to Russia, this war, because um, the Chinese must be looking at Russia with disdain now. This is a mafia state where a lot of the money that was supposed to have gone to the Russian military was obviously stolen. And um, this is not a, not a world-class great power army. It, I mean, it, it simply is not. And um, and they can't uh, they can't really do a good job in Ukraine. So I, I think that also is embarrassing. A lot of countries that were importing Russian arms, like India and Philippines, have now cancelled their orders. I mean, r- Russian arms don't look very good. Um, the country that will gain a lot from this will be Turkey. We, I mean, everybody's going to want to buy Turkish Bayraktar drones. So I think all of those issues inevitably are going to be sowing discontent at the top. And um, if Ukraine, as I believe it will be successful in recapturing Kherson region in the south, that, that defeat will be a major factor in maybe pushing more and more people to say, I think Putin needs to go. Well, Taras Kuzio, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Taras Kuzio, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev, and he's the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the likelihood that the revival of the Iran nuclear deal is very near and that its renewal could prompt the pro-Trump Saudi leader MBS to drive up the price of oil ahead of the November elections in retaliation to hurt Biden. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Trita Parsi, who's Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a Professor of Political Science at Georgetown University, and the co-founder of the, and former President of the National Iranian American Council. And he is the author of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph Over Diplomacy. And he has an article at MSNBC, China is not the winner of a U.S. military exit from the Middle East. America is. Welcome to Background Briefing, Trita Parsons. Thanks so much for having me. So it's pretty clear that both Israel and Saudi Arabia do not want the U.S. to exit from uh, the Middle East. And arguably, the cost of uh, the Iraq war 
the war in Afghanistan, I don't know what the total figures are, but something like seven to eight trillion dollars has literally been wasted. So there, I think there's a good argument here. But what's going on in terms of the JCPOA, the revival of the Iran nuclear talks? My understanding is that they're getting close to a resolution. And I imagine as it gets closer to a resolution and when, in fact, there is an announcement that the deal is back on, won't there be a backlash from Israel and Saudi Arabia? So, uh, first of all, yes, they are closer. The Europeans put forward a proposal. The Iranians responded positively, but they had some amendments. The Europeans characterized those as reasonable. The U.S. took about nine days to review and come back with its response, which was also positive, but it also had some revisions to the Iranian amendments. And the ball is now back in Tehran's court. And the U.S. side, of course, hopes that the Iranians will just come back with a straight yes and that this thing can move forward very quickly because there's some unnegotiable deadlines on the American side with the political calendar here that can be quite decisive for this matter. If this drags on beyond the, the midterms, it could really be the end of it. So the U.S. side wants to move forward quickly. And so far, frankly, the Iranians have not delayed, at least not at this stage. They were definitely delaying before. And we have seen in the last couple of days that the Israelis have done everything they can to convince the U.S. not to go forward. But they so far seem to have failed. They've sent delegations over here to make those arguments, haven't they? They have, and they're putting a lot of pressure on the United States to, as they put it, be courageous and walk away from the talks, which is, of course, quite nonsensical because it is very clear to the Obama administration that Trump's exit from the deal was a massive strategic mistake, that it has dramatically worsened the situation, has brought uh, major tensions between the U.S. and Iran. In my view, the, the Biden administration should have just walked back in through an executive order right away. It would have saved a lot of time and uh, put the U.S. in a better position. But if they are successful now with these talks, then that definitely is better than nothing. In fact, it, it is quite a, a big achievement. And, and there is a bit of a panic on the Israeli side. And there's been the perception for some time that this time around, the Saudis, the Emiratis, and some of the other Arab states have come around to realize that it's actually better to have the JCPA than not to have it. But as we have gotten close to a potential breakthrough, it's been fascinating to see how the Saudis have been uh, uh, signaling their displeasure and even making some threats, including the threat of uh, cutting oil production and specifically seeking to push up oil prices, which would be a, quite a disaster for the Biden administration and quite an embarrassment mindful of the fact that Biden humiliated himself going to Saudi Arabia uh, two months ago, fist bumping MBS, and essentially not only getting nothing for it, but actually uh, getting further humiliated a second time by the Saudis actually cutting rather than increasing oil production. Well, there's no mystery that MBS wants Trump to come back. He gave $2 billion to Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and a billion dollars to uh, his former secretary, of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing rumors that Trump was kind of annoyed that Jared and, and Mnuchin were making all this money out of his presidency, that maybe he stashed some documents down there in Mar-a-Lago in the hope of, of <laughs> monetizing his uh, something with the Saudis in terms of uh, selling secrets. So 
I know that's speculation, but just based on what you've just told us, Trita Parsi, that the Saudis could cut production before the American elections in November, which are only about a little over two months away, if that were to happen, obviously it would help the republics enormously. So isn't that an argument then to delay the uh, talks until after uh, the elections as opposed to make an announcement soon? I don't think so, because first of all, further delay provides further opportunities for those who want to scuttle the talks to create new problems. And these talks are already very sensitive, very fragile, um, and uh, you don't want to run that risk. But there's also another issue, which is that we don't know what's going to happen in the November elections. If it ends up so that the Democrats lose a lot of seats in the Senate, then getting the new JCPOA through the Senate, because there's going to have to be a vote through the Inara law um, uh, in the Senate, can end up becoming an impossibility. Right now, the chances seem to be better than 50% that the Senate would um, reject a resolution to reject the JCPOA, meaning uh, it's done in a little bit of a complicated way. Uh, but after the elections, we don't know. So it's not worth waiting, in my view. It's much better to move as fast as possible. In fact, as I mentioned earlier on, this should have just been done back in uh, uh, January 2021. But given that you've, in your article at MSNBC, Trita Parsi, China is not the winner of a U.S. military exit from the Middle East, America is, which I, I want to talk about the premise of the headline there, but I still wanted to pin down this idea that MBS is going to help the Republicans. So is it going to happen then? In other words, once the JCPO is announced, then both the Israelis and the Saudis and the Emiratis are going to be furious. And is, is MBS likely then to put the squeeze on oil supplies to hurt the Democrats in the midterm elections? Is that a f not just a possibility, but almost a foregone conclusion? Uh, it certainly is a possibility. I don't know if it's the foregone conclusion, but keep also in mind that if there is a JCPOA and if Saudi were to do this, it would nevertheless have to contend with the fact that there's roughly 80 million barrels of Iranian oil that almost immediately will get onto the market. So Saudi Arabia's efforts to increase oil prices may be offset by the fact that the Iranians uh, will be able to come back onto the market. So it, it may end up being uh, an effort by MBS to hurt uh, Biden and the Democrats. It may fail, but it will have cemented clearly the picture that Saudi Arabia is, is, is not a friend of America, it's a friend of one party in America. Well, it does seem, though, that the Saudis are making a fortune now on oil, and they're, they're also selling discounted Russian oil to help out Putin, they're hardly behaving like a U.S. ally. Oh, certainly not. I totally agree with that. And technically, they're not an ally. They're just a strategic partner. Um, and what I write about in this article is that, unfortunately, uh, sometime last fall, the Biden administration changed its calculation. It was originally planning on a broader military withdrawal from the Middle East. But then change its minds, fearing that if they were to leave, it would leave a, a vacuum that would be filled by China 
and that countries such as Saudi Arabia would gravitate towards the Chinese. And because of their belief that the American alliance system is a, a critical advantage that the U.S. has over China, it, it became even more important to be even more deferential to countries like Saudi Arabia, even though they certainly do not act like friends or allies of the United States. And, and the trip to Saudi Arabia and the fist bump was all part of that, uh, an effort to keep the Saudis on the U.S. side so they wouldn't defect uh, to the Chinese side. But that whole calculation is entirely wrong because, as the title says, the U.S. Uh, lessening its military footprint in the Middle East is not a favor to China. It's a favor to the United States itself. Well, Mao Zedong uh, once said that the sweet spot in geopolitical relations is to have hegemony without responsibility. And <laughs> the United States has practiced the opposite. Well, we've had hegemony at enormous responsibility and sometimes unnecessary expense like the Iraq war. And you could argue the Afghan war as well. So it's not in the Chinese playbook, is it, to get bogged down uh, with bases in the, around the world like we have Absolutely. done? Absolutely. I agree. I agree fully. It's the idea that the Chinese would move in militarily in the Middle East, uh, I, I think it's very hard um, to be convinced by. I think the more compelling argument uh, made in the White House is not that the Chinese would move in militarily, but without the kind of implicit security guarantees to Saudi Arabia, the Saudis would gravitate further towards Beijing. And that would be a major challenge for the United States because the competition with China as they envision it is not going to take place just in the South China Sea. It's going to take place in Africa, Latin America, and in the Middle East. And as a result, nothing should be done to encourage the Saudis to move towards uh, China. But what I think Biden's trip did is that it showed that not only is that calculation flawed, it doesn't work anyways, because he bent over backwards for MBS, he fist bumped the guy, and still China is hedging its bet, uh, Saudi Arabia is hedging its bets against the United States and moving closer to China and potentially even increasing oil prices. So in, but isn't China also buying uh, Iranian oil? against the sanctions? Yes, they're they uh, buying quite a lot of Iranian oil. They have been doing so even during the, the Trump years. Uh, and it, it's not so that the U.S. necessarily is turning a blind eye. There's a limitation also to what the U.S. could do about that. But I think the Biden administration in particular did not want to go too hard on that uh, because it would essentially be to escalate even further Trump's maximum pressure strategy. Uh, and, it, it, you know, the administration itself knows that any, you know, that A, the maximum pressure strategy was a failure, and that there's really nothing that would indicate that, you know, that Biden would be able to be more successful with that strategy than, Biden, uh, than Trump was. So what's happening then with Saudi Arabia's, I don't know whether you could call it a flirtation, but there was a, there was a suggestion that the Saudis might start buying oil in yuan or other currencies as opposed, as opposed to the dollar. Did that ever happen, or is that still a threat that MBS is using against the U.S.? Yeah, it seems to be more of a threat, but, you know, it, it certainly could hurt the United States. Saudi Arabia is not, 
it, it's not without cars. It can make things more difficult for the United States. But I think it's more true to say that the United States can really make things more difficult for Saudi Arabia, but it's been extremely unwilling to use its leverage against Saudi Arabia. And I think a large part of that, frankly, not all of it, but a large part of it is because of the manner in which Saudi Arabia is subsidizing and upholding the American defense industry. There is no real Saudi lobby in the United States. It's a defense industry that is the Saudi lobby in the United States. Right. But on the other hand, as we mentioned earlier, the Saudis are selling discounted Russian oil around the embargo against Russia. The Emiratis are laundering enormous amounts of Russian money and the Russian oligarchs are parking their yachts there, their super yachts, as they are also doing in Turkey, where Erdogan is also helping out the Russians skirt EU and uh, US sanctions. So the, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of so-called US allies out there. And, and by the Israelis, the Israelis haven't really come to Ukraine's defense in any robust way. It's upset uh, President Zelensky, who's Jewish and is furious with uh, Israel for not giving him a full-throated support. So what's happening in the, in the broader sense about uh, maybe we should have a referendum here on who our friends are and who our enemies are? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. I think, to be frank, these states are actually, you can't really fault them for being irrational. They're, they're recognizing that the world is multipolar and they're acting accordingly and they're hedging their bets and they're taking advantage of unwarranted American deference to The real problem is on our end. Why are we allowing this? Why are we pursuing a policy in which we're treating these countries as friends when they're not reciprocating? We're the ones that have to change in order for them to change. As long as we're giving them the opportunity to behave like this, we cannot be, you know, be surprised that they are. So then it gets down to the military industrial complex uh, running our foreign policy. Yeah, it comes down to the very fact that still the, the fundamental belief in Washington is that the United States needs to maintain uh, liberal hegemony globally, uh, not withdraw from almost any corner of the world, because uh, if we don't dominate the globe, some other entity will do so uh, in our stead and against us. The very idea that there can be multipolarity in a way that is not a threat to the United States, that we actually can be more secure by not being in every corner of the world militarily. Those are ideas that are very strongly held in, in the country amongst general people, but it doesn't have a huge amount of following yet inside of Washington itself. And what's happened with the Russian invasion of Ukraine has only reinforced the idea that the United States needs to be uh, a dominant military force uh, uh, for the safety of the United States itself, despite the fact that the track record of it clearly shows that it's actually making us less safe. Uh, there's a very fascinating new study coming out by Monica Tofton, one of her colleagues, looking at all of the military interventions of the United States since 1776. And what's so fascinating is that 25% of them came after the Cold War. These last 25 years account for 25% of all of America's military interventions. At a time when we're supposedly at our safest because we are a unipolar power, we actually intervened militarily far more so than we did before. 
So it seems like we're intervening not because we need to, but because we can. So, and we can't break the habit. But just just in closing here then, Trita Parsi, tell me more about this study and how uh, listeners can get hold of it. Uh, we're doing an event on September 6th uh, with the authors of the report. Monica Toff herself is a non-resident fellow at Quincy. And John Mersheim was also uh, affiliated with Quincy. Uh, it will be a very fascinating conversation. And it will really go to the root of why we're engaging in this, but also just showing. I, I think the vast majority of Americans are probably not aware at all uh, to the extent to which we are intervening. Uh, and, and partly because we're intervening in such a way these days that Americans largely don't even know about. Right, but I'll, I'll talk to uh, the author, hopefully, when this happens in on September the 6th. But within the, your organization, the Quincy Institute itself, haven't there been some people that have left your organization because they don't feel that the Quincy Institute is being strong enough in its support for Ukraine, which has been invaded by Russia. Yeah, so we've had one non-resident fellow out of more than 40 who resigned over this issue and, and wanted us to take uh, a, a position that I think he would characterize as being more supportive of Ukraine. In our view, uh, we have been in support of the idea that Ukraine is an independent state that should be independent, its territorial integrity should be respected, that the Russian invasion is illegal, needs to be rebuffed. But we have not favored moving in the direction of having an endless war with Russia or to pursue the war in order to weaken Russia rather than to defend Ukraine. Uh, and we have not favored anything that we think would be so escalatory that it can lead to uh, a nuclear confrontation. We are right now in an era in which the risk of nuclear war is actually the highest and it's been since the uh, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. So we have been a voice of caution uh, and restraint in Washington, D.C. at a time when the atmosphere is very much gung-ho, uh, belief in that is moral clarity, but in our view, ultimately, if we don't negotiate an end to this war as quickly as possible, the end result will mainly be that we will get the same result as before, but far more Ukrainians will be dead, far more of Ukraine will be destroyed. We do not see how that can actually be characterized as defending Ukraine or being more in favor of Ukraine. Well, Dr. Trita Parsi, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Trita Parsi, who's Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a Professor of Political Science at Georgetown University and the author of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. And he has an article at MSNBC, China is not the winner of a U.S. military exit from the Middle East. America is. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.